As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. And she incorporated those things in everything we did. So we weren't allowed to get Christmas presents until we figured out a Christmas service project for community. We weren't allowed to eat Thanksgiving dinner until we fed the homeless first. And she taught us that you give the way you would want to receive. So you don't just hand someone money on the street and walk away and feel better about stuff. That you stop and you have a conversation. You ask people's names. You ask how their day was. Even if it's that's all you're able to give, you give that because we're all humans and we all have to connect with humanity. Hello. This is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I was recently in New Orleans where I got the opportunity to interview a series of Louisiana-based leaders. This episode with Nia Weeks is the first of those conversations. Nia is a New Orleans-based progressive lawyer, a public defender, and activist. She has a wonderful personal story of growth and resilience and achievement. Nia has a long history of serving the needs of the most marginalized in many different capacities. She recently founded and runs her own C3, C4, and PAC, that is, her own nonprofit organizations and political action committee. Citizen She, Citizen She United. I leave it to her to explain the naming, but their mission is to advocate for the needs of African-American women across the state of Louisiana. As Jama Bickley King, former guest on the podcast, put it, Nia is a dope human. So after a quick word from our sponsor, please listen to Nia Weeks and Citizen She United. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Nia. Hi. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Absolutely. I'm Nia Weeks. I am born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. I left home for about 10 years, came back to finish law school, brought four small children with me, (laughs) and began a career in social justice lawyering. I'm a former public defender. I used to run a shelter for victims of domestic violence. And then I did policy and advocacy for a black women's organization locally, 28-year-old organization that advocated with marginalized black women across the South. And it was in that role that I started my new role (laughs) in my new organization, Citizen She and Citizen She United. Citizen She and Citizen She United. Yes. Okay. Well, that is clearly a career committed to the people that you grew up with and that you care about. 
Yes. Right. I love them. <laughs> I do. I, my mom said one of my first words were, I love people. <laughs> you already give off that aura when I talk to you just for a few minutes here. And Thank I am you. in the Magnolia yes. Yoga Studio, yes. which uh, you say a lot of activism happens. Absolutely. Here. Yes. It's a black owned. Mm-hmm. First uh, black female owned yoga studio in the city. And everybody comes here and there's so much more than yoga <laughs> that happens <laughs> in these walls. I bet that's true. Well, I want to go back. And kind of go through your career a little bit first, sure. because it's an interesting one, and it leads up to what you're doing right now. Sure. Tell me about like high school and growing up here a little oh, bit. Oh yeah, growing up in New Orleans is probably one of the um, greatest privileges of my life. Uh, my parents are from here. Um, they moved to Minnesota for a couple of years. That is where. Nia came to be, and they moved back down here because they wanted to make sure that all of their children knew their grandparents. My mom was an activist in ways that people wouldn't traditionally say were activists. Um, We lived in a predominantly white neighborhood. I went to predominantly white school. I was the only black student in my class for the first seven years of my education. And um, my mom was always encouraging us to sit in the front don't ever sit in the back. Ask questions. Be proud of self. Be proud of your hair and you know and and, and your lips and you know and the way you look and the, and your family. And so it was really wonderful to grow up with that juxtaposed um, space. Also, uh, my mom instilled in us really strong principles. So my mom was a religion teacher in a Catholic school and really spent time um, harping on the corporal works of mercy, um, which are like doing active work for the community around you. So like feeding the hungry and um, visiting the sick and you touch people who need, you know, shelter and warmth. And she incorporated those things in everything we did. So we weren't allowed to get Christmas presents until we figured out a Christmas service project for community. We weren't allowed to eat Thanksgiving dinner until we fed the homeless first. And she taught us that you give the way you would want to receive. So you don't just hand someone money on the street and walk away and feel better about stuff, that you stop and you have a conversation, you ask people's names, you ask how their day was. Even if it's that's all you're able to give, you give that because we're all humans and we all have to connect with humanity. Sounds like you feel like you had a pretty good role model. I did, Yeah, I did. She's yeah. a, mama was a, an amazingly um, loving, introspective person. And she taught me that if you love your child, even a little bit, you love every child in the world just as much. And so when children would come into our home, my friends, they got the same things we did. So we were doing a shopping street of Tours R Us and we were all getting Cabbage Patch Kids. My friends got Cabbage Patch Kids too. If we were going clothes shopping and you know my mom was getting us new clothes for the summer, my friends got new clothes for the summer too. And so everybody that came into our home, everyone that we interacted with was treated with the same love, care, respect, and dignity, regardless of of who they were or how they entered. That seems pretty unusual from my experience. Yeah. Mom mom was was really, really wonderfully unique in that way. Um, and she also would profess, like even when we would get angry at a friend, um, she would make us think about why we were angry and what actions had caused us to be upset or frustrated. And she'd say, you know, you never know what someone wakes up with and goes to bed with at night. You never know what they have to do to navigate through their day. And until you really understand that, you can't really judge how they move and react and interact because it all could be survival. And that was a really poignant lesson to me. Like, 
even now like doing this work, right? And like doing the, the work that I've done historically, like it's been really centering because it's allowed me to see people beyond um, the first interaction with them or beyond, you know, what negative experience I may have. It helps me to think about why that experience happened, who they are, who loves them, you know, how they navigate through the world. Sure. So high school, how'd you do? High school. You a good student? I, I was a decent student. <laughs> I went to an all-girls Catholic school, mm-hmm. the oldest all-girl Catholic school in the country, mm-hmm. uh, Ursuline Academy. I loved high school. I, I loved being in an all-girl environment. I, it's all I knew. Was it mixed racially? Yes. Yeah. It, it, um, so Ursuline is is really interesting and, and, and unique. I mean, it is majority. It was majority white. But I remember, so I switched from Sacred Heart to Ursuline in fifth grade, and there were five black students in my fifth grade class and I remember thinking this is what majority black means because <laughs> it's more than one and it's not just me right. and so as predominantly we, predominantly exactly exactly and With so as, <laughs> yeah, exactly and so you know as I matriculated through high school our high school was bigger we had 104 girls about 25 girls um, were black girls but they were also um, different religions and different cultures um, that were integrated in that space as well and so I I felt like I had a really um, phenomenal like interaction with different kinds of people, more so than a traditional Catholic school. If if someone had to like say what kind of kid you were, I remember mm-hmm. some reporter came into my high school and picked examples of different groups. What would what would they have said about you? I was the environmentalist, and I was yeah. I was like known for being the environmentalist. <laughs> I had volunteered at the zoo for nine years, from <laughs> seventh grade all the way through. Yeah. I knew every fact about every animal, and it was funny because I wouldn't allow people to kill bugs, and I would scoop them up and bring them outside. Uh-huh. And uh, there was a soft heart. <laughs> <laughs> And we were on Facebook, and I, my friends were like, my classmates were actually making fun of me like 20 years later. <laughs> and saying like, you remember me when you got that roach out of this class? I'm like, yes, I remember. <laughs> and so, yes, I was that kid. And you went off to college. I did. And where was that? Oh, ooh, my college experience is a little bit, ooh. It's interesting and discombobulated and fascinating and all rolled into one. So I started out at Auburn University mm-hmm. in Alabama. It's because I want to be close to home, but away. Um, And maybe there was a boy in there. But (laughs) I I went to Auburn. I got married my sophomore year. I had my first child my sophomore year. And so my ex-husband played football for Auburn. Um, So, Which is a big deal at Auburn. It was a big deal at Auburn, (laughs) right? And then there was this transition where Coach Bowden was fired and Coach Tuberville came in. Um, Tuberville was slowly letting go of Bowden's recruits. We were newly married, pregnant, and so we decided we were going to leave Auburn. And we were going to go to another D1 school. So in order to do that, you have to transfer down to transfer back up. So we had to go to a junior college. Uh, my ex-husband went to junior college in Mississippi. We couldn't afford to stay together. So our first year of marriage, we, uh-huh. I was in New Orleans. He's in Mississippi. I was raising my son, Taylor, who is 19 now and in Oakland about to meet Obama today, which nice. is incredible, right? <laughs> um, but we, we did that first year apart. And then we both transferred together to Indiana State. So we traveled where we had never been before to the Midwest, which was a 
wonderful, wonderful space. Yeah. You know, one thing that I've been really blessed with is like being able to like see so many different facets of this country. And the people in the Midwest were fascinating to me because I love the traditions of the South. Like, and there's so many things that like about Southern tradition that maybe like, you know, make people want to itch. And I, I absolutely agree with those. But there's some things that are really fascinating about the South. People think that Southern women that were reserved and were, you know, were conservative and hold back, but like, the strength is in our womanhood, right? And like we really, women in the South really lead their families and communities in ways that people who aren't ingrained in this space can really, really see. Um, But it's beautiful to be a part of like such a strong matriarchal culture and strong traditions and strong sense of family. In the Midwest, it was this openness that I had never experienced before. I went to poetry readings and they're talking about things that I was like, oh, you can't say that word. You know, <laughs> you can't do that. You know, you people don't express those things, but they did. And it was really fascinating. And so I became this ultra feminist. I did the vagina monologues um, multiple years in a row. We had these um, V-Day t-shirts that said, got vagina. And I wore mine as (laughs) often as I could just to throw it in the face. I led rallies and I was, I was that person, right? Like all the, all the movies that show like the radicalized person in college. That was me. (laughs) And I loved it. I loved every second of it. After college, where'd you go? So we wound up having three children. Um, During this time through college? During this time through college, yes. (laughs) My my, my third daughter was born. um, Is this a Catholic thing? Yeah, I I didn't know what it is. (laughs) My ex-husband actually was a Baptist pastor. Uh Um, And so we moved to Florida. His father was a pastor. He pastored a church. And I was first lady. And it's so funny because people who knew first lady Nia and people who know Nia Nia are like, ah, those two people don't gel. First lady Nia, I really enjoyed that role because because it allowed me to connect to people in multiple ways. It allowed me to sit and listen and be around people during their most vulnerable spaces and vulnerable time. And it was such a privilege to me that people were asking me to help guide them through that. And so I love that role, love that position, lived in Florida for five years, ran a couple of uh, nonprofits within the church. And then worked, I was trying to put together this project where families who didn't, who the parents didn't have GED would get GED training at the same time that their children, um, one to five years old, were getting reading support and kind of working with families around um, supportive education. And then I was like, I want to have a job job. I started working for this organization called Partnership for Strong Families. Florida had privatized their foster care system, and I did the community relations, public relations for that company. And then I was like, I can't advocate for these kids and families the way I want to. Because every time I, I go to advocate, I get stopped at the courtroom door. I said, so how do I get past that? go to law school. So I literally took the LSAT within four months of deciding to go to law school, somehow got a good score, um, and then quit my job and went to law school. Um, Started law school at Florida Coastal. Into my first semester, I got very sick, realized that that illness was type 1 diabetes because my law school was two hours away from my house. And so I'm driving back and forth, got very sick on the way. So they tell me I'm type 1 diabetic. I accepted. And the doctor comes knocking on the door and says, did you know you were pregnant? Oh, man. 
Law nope. school. <laughs> law school, <laughs> new disease, <laughs> and pregnant, and how many kids already? Three. Three kids Three already. Three kids, yeah. yes. Yep. Yep. So Cammy, um, she hates it when I say it. When she was born, I took a year off from law school. And went that's, back. The, that's the type of diabetes where you have to take shot, insulin take shots. all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I take um, six shots a day. Cammy yeah. hates it when I say it, but I, she was born and went right back to school. I nursed her through contracts and evidence. Um, there's <laughs> me with the stroller and the baby, yeah. um, which was a wonderful experience. And I remember the first day I brought Cammy in the in the stroller, and I was really embarrassed, right, by having like to struggle with all these things. This law school was highly competitive. I was in Florida law school. You know, I'm just like, there's so many things going on. And my professor, who was a renowned professor when it came to moot court, so he was brilliant, right? I'm just like, I'm messing up, I'm messing up, messing up. And he sends me an email later that evening, and he said that he moves so fast that sometimes he forgets the reason why he's there. And me having Cami in class that day reminded him of who he really was and what he was meant to do, and he thanked me for that. And that moment, I was like, oh, I can do this, right? right. Um, my, and you have a reason to do and it. And I have a reason, yeah, exactly, yes. exactly. Yeah. So I'm in Florida, my ex-husband and I were- So you had split by this time. We were on our way to split. Yeah. And recognized that I couldn't finish law school in Florida in that space that I needed my family. My family was still surviving post-Katrina. Nobody in my family returned back to the home that they left. Everybody so, got flooded badly. Everybody got flooded badly, and everybody either had to rebuild or move somewhere else, buy a new home. At that time, um, my mama, she had a stroke after Katrina. Um, she was in very, very, very early stage dementia um, and was living in the basement of a friend's home. The only place for me and my children to move to was the couch. And so, and you got a lot of kids. Got a lot of kids, right? A lot it's of a kids. Big couch. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. They got the couch. I got the chair. And for I transferred to Loyola, which was a wonderful transition for me because the school supported me so well. But the reality was is that my kids now were essentially homeless um, for the duration of me matriculating, which is not your standard law school experience, right? really, in this country. No. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. One of those things where they say, you fake it till you make it. And I kept saying, I was like, I'm going to keep showing up until they put me out or I graduate. (laughs) How did you you like law school? I mean, with all that going on, you liked learning the stuff. Mm -hmm. I loved it. I loved every second of law school. Um, It allowed me to think, right? And think expansively, like all the things that I felt in here and all the things that... You're thinking, I can use this tool. Exactly. That's exactly, exactly what it was. And I was competing on trial teams. I was a um, trial advocate on the trial team. We actually were winning competitions all over the country. And I say my trial team was one of the most amazing group of people because they sat there. We would practice while I'm nursing the baby. Or we would um, be up late at night because that was the only time I, I could. So like midnight to two, we're sitting there going over and strategizing our, our trial. They're all uh, defense attorneys and they are some dope offense, defense <laughs> attorneys because I'm like, y'all heard and we're around everything. You know, and the Loyola, uh, my other kids were in school and we would bike 
to school because their school was like right around the corner from the law school. And the law school, the Dunbar's cafeteria fed my kids every day. They would allow them to come to class with me. Sometimes uh, professors that they did would they have keep me, quiet? They would. They learned they, so much. They, 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 <laughs> they, they're they're almost lawyers. They right now. really are. <laughs> they could cross direct, open, close better than any attorney in this city. Um, and like the professors would even watch the kids, so I could study. I had a, my, my best friends went to Tulane Law. Every Monday, they would take the kids and watch them for seven hours, so I could study, sleep, cook. There was a, a church that kind of adopted us a little bit. And during exam time, the women in the church who were stay-at-home moms would all sign up on this list, and they would take her for hours so I could study. When I got my degree, I was like, yeah, it's mine. But this degree belongs to this entire city. <laughs> well, a lot of people invested in you. Exactly, yes. exactly, yes. That, that, is, that is an awesome story. <laughs> and how did you feel on graduation? It was, oh, <laughs> graduation day. I felt incredible. It was one of those moments that I, like my, my mom says, oh, you're smelling yourself, huh? And I did. I was like, yes, I have a law degree. <laughs> and then I'm walking through the convention center and Cami is like walking funny. And I'm like, why is she walking like this? And I look down and her diaper is full. It's so like I'm in my law school gown. I had to. It's the sublime and the ridiculous. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) It was one of those moments that reminded me, like, never forget. It's like what my professor had said never forget who you are. And I am their mama. I am their mama first. And then everything that I do, every place that I move, I'm moving as their mama. I think about what my mama is to me and was to me. And I realized, oh, I'm that for them. Like when they think about their memories in their childhood, the things that I do, the things that I don't do, the things that I say are going to be the things that they're going to use to move through this world. And so, you know, it's like, never forget, you their mama. <laughs> <laughs> she won't let you. No, she won't let me. <laughs> I know that you worked really hard to find the first job out of law school, right? I did. Tell me about that. Oh, my goodness. I did a whole bunch of stuff. I did all kind of craziness because I didn't have the same uh, trajectory that most of my other classmates had. You hadn't done the, the like, job, the summer jobs at the big firms. Exactly. You hadn't, yeah, you didn't have a path laid out yet. No, right? at all. And that wasn't where you wanted to go anyway. No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly right. Exactly right. Um, so what I did was I went to every single courtroom in the city and I would follow with the email to the judge and the, hey, I was in court, heard you're looking for a law clerk. I don't know if they were looking for a law clerk. Heard you're looking for a law clerk. Here's my resume. And that is how my resume got circulated. And one judge called me, she says, I'm not looking for one, but Judge Reed is looking for one for city court. You know, I'm going to pass your resume along. Judge Reed got my resume. She interviewed me. And in the interview, I said I went to Ursuline. She goes, oh, you should have led with that. <laughs> of course, she was an Ursuline grad too. So and you had so the connection. I had the connection, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so I clerked for Judge Reed for a year, mm-hmm. um, which was a wonderful experience. If anyone ever gets a clerk for a judge, you know, you are almost essentially the attorney for the judge. The law clerk and the minute clerk are the really powerful spaces in the courtroom because that's those are two people who have the judge's ear, right? And 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 the judge's hand most of the time. What kind of judge was she? She was a city city judge, first yeah. city judge. Mm-hmm. So what what was the notable thing that you had to like write a brief on or whatever it was? Oh goodness. So we did a lot of work with housing, right? Eviction court happens in first city court. I had done a volunteer spot 
at Southeastern Legal Services, which is like the public defender's office for civil court, and knew was really well versed in what it looks like for people to navigate not having housing. And Louisiana laws when it comes to housing eviction are strict. It is very landlord friendly. Landlords can get you out really, really you don't, quick. Yeah. And that's rough on a family or is yeah, extremely rough on a family. Yeah. There was one eviction in particular that kind of jarred me. This family had been in this home for three years um, and they had established themselves there. They had a daughter and the landlord was having repairs done and the people who doing the repairs were coming in and out of the house. And at one point there are people doing repairs where their young daughter was in there by herself. And the family was really, really agitated by it. So they changed their locks. And when they changed their locks, they technically broke their lease. And the judge had no other option than to evict them. Because of the letter of the law. Because of the letter of the law. That doesn't, I hate the letter of the law mm-hmm. when it's something trivial like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. And in Louisiana, we're codified, right? And so like... There should be some ability to repair that problem, right? Or, there should be, but no, just in the law, unless yeah. the landlord said that there is, unless the landlord... Unless just, it's in the contract. Exactly. Yeah. But th- most landlords are going to do it. If you change right. a lot... You so how frustrating it, it is to be working for the judge who has to come down on maybe a decision that isn't full of justice. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to pull my connections with Southeast Louisiana Legal Services. It's a tongue tie. I was able to pull my connections with them and my other connections with spaces in the city that do housing. I was able to find them a better space to live. And it was one of those moments that I was like, the law, yes, but it's so much bigger. And what does it mean to be an advocate, right? What does it mean to be more than just an attorney, guiding people through um, navigating from point A to point B within a legal contest? But what does it mean to be a humanitarian within that space? And so the end of that space with uh, Judge Reed, I moved on to this new position as the director of Harmony House. And Harmony House was a supervised visitation center for victims of domestic violence. It was it was housed at the sheriff's office. And what it was is a supervised exchange. So parents who had protective orders or children who had, um, had to have supervised visitation, um, they came to our center and they could either exchange or do their visit there with the supervision of social workers. And when I inherited the program, it was there some work that needed to be done with it. And I was able to restructure this program into being something centered around the kids that went there. You know, there were the protective orders and the orders uh, for supervision were legal documents. However, I could use the space to create something more and better, right? In a space where children were centered, where families could gain what they needed to gain. And so we partnered with other organizations and spaces that did counseling and therapy and um, brought in those types of services. That was that was a privilege to work in that. It strikes me that it takes a certain amount of bravery to move into a world like that. Because, <laughs> you know, if you're talking about people experiencing violence, you're mm-hmm. talking about things that can get out of control sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Did you feel worried about it at all? What was what was your outlook? Mm-hmm. My biggest worry was how the kids' hearts felt while they were there and when they left. Outside of that, I was never worried about like my own safety or protection. Um, there were safeguards for that. A couple of incidents happened, but nothing really um, traumatic. However, 
There was a walk that the kids had to do from the custodial parent into the space with the non-custodial parent. That's when I would take time to do that check-in. How are you doing? How's your day? And if I saw in their eyes that glimmer of fear, right, my radar went up and worked really hard to try to bring those dilated pupils down and hope that when they went home that the anxiety within their belly was eased. The knowledge that people live in fear on a consistent basis is something that triggers me. And the knowledge that there are children living like that um, is extremely triggering. Like even now, thinking about there's a child right now in a space that is really scary. And children have very little control over their outside space. And so within that that two hours, I, I wanted to ensure as much safety and protection as I could, but I knew that outside of that. And so that's the part that was made it really difficult. What led you to leave that and what did you do next? Mm -hmm. I wanted to litigate again. Um, and I felt that being in the courtroom would allow me to advocate differently from a more um, tangible space. Um, so I applied to be a public defender. Actually, I didn't apply to be a public defender. I applied to be a social worker at the public defender's office and they did not hire me. And then like two weeks later, they were like, but this attorney position is open. <laughs> Is, um, in municipal court. Which is a better position. Which is a better <laughs> position, yes. And it was in municipal court, which was really exactly the marriage that I wanted. Mm -hmm. So we're in felony court. People call it state court. It is bigger cases. You know, you're dealing with people accused of more serious things. In municipal court, it's people accused of the small things, right? And it literally is the space where mental health and homelessness and addiction and and um, people navigating through difficult spaces and people just being in messed up, you know, social structure. You know, I had people being arrested. I, I call them homeless crimes, you know, just for sitting on the sidewalk. I had children being arrested um, for fighting, mostly black children being arrested for fighting, right? Or marijuana use or, you know, smaller crimes. And so I was able to be a social worker attorney, right? right. And I remember a judge asked me, are you a social worker or are you an attorney? I said... Uh -huh. Ask me, you know, each case because each case changes. And, you know, I had to redefine what winning looked like. I had to redefine what success looked like as a person, as an attorney. In this case, this person going home in this way, great. In this case, this person just being able to stay away from the person that's harming them. That's the win, right? And so being able to navigate through all of that, I loved being... Uh, defense attorney. And it seems like that's in, a, in large part why you went to law school. Mm -hmm, and so you're mm -hmm. kind of, you're kind of getting a chance to really use those tools that you'd work so hard to get. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. How yep. long did you do that? Three years. Yeah. Three years. Tiring job though, I assume. Exhausting. I, a couple thousand cases in those three years. New Orleans is the incarceration capital of the world and municipal court is where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. So heartbreaking too. Yeah. yeah. In more ways than one. Yeah. Was there a particular case that Ooh. stuck with you? There's a few. New Orleans, people talk about the violence in the city and the gun violence and what have you. I have yet to have a baby client. I call my baby clients my 17 to 24-year-olds. I have yet to have a baby client who was accused of having a gun or being in the vicinity of a gun 
with the desire to do something dangerous with it. The fear, because the reality is, is that when we talk about dangerous communities or dangerous spaces, like everyone talks about like in these outside, but like there are babies living in that and they have, they're trying to figure out how to survive um, in spaces that just aren't protecting them. One, so, wait, so I'm not clear. You're saying you had no one who had a gun? or you had no one who had a gun with a desire to use it to rob somebody or harm they had, somebody. They had a gun they only a gun because they were protecting, protecting themselves, themselves, you're saying. And they would say, but Miss Nia, you know where this I live. This is a defensive weapon. Defensive is, weapon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what they get in big trouble for having it. But them. they get in big trouble for having it. Exactly. What, what, explain. So the first time you were accused of having a gun, it's a misdemeanor. However, judges, prosecutors hate guns. And so they were structure a scenario where six months in jail, which is the maximum that they they, they spent the six months in jail you, across the for board. For a misdemeanor. For a misdemeanor. That seems mm-hmm. awfully stringent. It is. So they would set bonds high enough mm-hmm. that they couldn't make them and then keep They used the bond to keep them in, exactly. incarcerated. And then at some point the child would plead out mm-hmm. and the plea agreement would be credit for time served, which is four or five months, plus... Um, two months worth of weekend warrior where they come to jail every weekend to make up for the other two months. What what do you think in general that time in prison did to the trajectory of those young people's lives? Mm -hmm. It destroyed it. It destroyed it. And it destroyed it in ways, you know, they're not getting an education. They're not getting any supportive services. um, And they're getting branded. And they're getting branded, right? And so then when they had that plea out, you know, to to get out of jail, now they're going home. Yeah, who's hiring the kid with the gun charge? Who, you can't get um, FAFSA, you can't get, so college is gone. So where do they go? Um, Back to the street. Back to the spaces where they're trying to survive. Getting the gun again. Getting the gun again. And now they're facing 10 years. Because the second time you're facing 10 years. And you're right? going to get caught and sometime. you're going to get caught. You're, you're going to so get caught. So you can just see the future for these young, mostly men, I assume. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And there was one kid, and I remember it was his third gun charge. And the only reason, he had been in jail for four months, the only reason that they were making it a misdemeanor, they were offering him the misdemeanor so that he was missing. Because the second one got pled down to a misdemeanor. The third one was going to get pled down to a misdemeanor because he was a witness in his own shooting. And so they wanted to make give him this plea deal because he didn't want to testify. Mm. But if you testify in your own shooting, we will give you this plea deal and you can go home. Testifying in your own shooting means you got shot. He got shot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at him and I said, baby, let me be, let me be clear. I said, I'm taking my lawyer hat off. I'm putting my mama hat on. You can't have the gun. If you get caught with the gun again, they are not going to be lenient and you are going to go away for 10 at least. And he looked at me and his eyes were so filled with fear, not by anything else that I said, except that you can't have the gun because in his mind, not having the gun meant he was going to die, period. And there's this realization that happened that, you know, people are like, oh, if they just had better and knew better, they'd do better. But like our ideas of survival, right, are, and, 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 and primitive are so real that all the things that make sense to us that aren't like fighting through that kind of survival, like it goes out the window it's because world. it's a different. It, it so, well, so if you if you had the magic wand here mm-hmm. and you could revamp the way society is treating these seventeen to twenty four year olds, mm-hmm. 
enumerate some of the things that you would overturn and mm -hmm. change? First thing I would address is economic instability. And everything, so not everything, but so much um, of the weight um, that happens to people living on the margins is because of money and lack of access to being able to to survive because of money, right? And so Louisiana, we don't have, you know, minimum wage. You know, we follow the federal minimum wage, but like our cost of living increase. The minimum wage is not enough to support you. At all. You yeah. know, there needs to be a living wage, a commitment to living wage. And and the reality is, is like most of the, the top 10 crimes that are committed in this state are direct, directly to economics, right? And so addressing that from its systemic space is, is, is important. Education and prioritizing not just like learning one plus one is two, but what does that experience translate to? How does that um, translate to a life experience? Or a different path. A different path, right? Yeah. You know, and, and just hope, right? I remember I used to substitute teach when I was in um, Indiana, and I passed around a card where kids um, on the front of the card, they put five skills, they thought they were good at. And then we passed the cards around five times and their friends got to write a career based on that skill set, right? And they, I said, you can make up whatever you want. And so we're reading the card and like, you could be an oceanographer. I had never thought about being an oceanographer before, <laughs> but I'm good at, yeah, like this. Okay, I can be something more than what I've seen, what I know. I can be big, right? And we all have this desire to be big big and validated in our existence to mean something. Injecting that into our young people is imperative. So when I talk about education, yes, one plus one is two, yes. But what does that mean? You know, and how does that translate to how we experience life? How we can operate in society and exactly. with more power and yes. more future. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. After your three years of this, Yes. What did you? <laughs> yes, I moved on. So uh, my last year, last couple months, I was a public defender. My mama passed. Uh, tough one. It was a tough one, uh, to say the least. Um, and I became a really, really not so great attorney, right? My clients were telling me their life story. I'm like, yeah, that's terrible. So I'm going to the judge and I'm crying to the judge. And the judge is like letting things go. But I'm like, you can't advocate this way. I text my supervising attorney Labor Day, Saturday. And it was, you can't, I can't do this bleep anymore. And they gave me two months to figure out my life. Um, and in that two months, I found this wonderful organization, 28-year-old organization that I've been advocating with marginalized black women across Called the what? Women with a Vision. Yes. They were looking for a director of policy. And I had never done policy, um, but I had been in political space and legal space. And so... And what's their mission? So they started out actually with eight queer black women who were social workers who wanted to do something and put a dent in the rise of HIV rates amongst black women. And at that time, um, when you look at the CDC, they weren't even acknowledging that black women were dying from AIDS and contracting HIV. And so they would go into housing development and teach the women doing sex work how to put condoms in their mouth or do needle exchange, right? To try to give them um, the mechanisms to keep themselves safe. From there, it branched out into, well, what are the reasons why, you know, we have poor health? What are the reasons why? And so they advocate on, from an intersectional space. And so work with criminalization and education and, uh, Economics And so I kind of meld it all together. It's called a reproductive justice. It's one of the only reproductive justice organizations in the state that centers black women and black women's health and really like 
still doing that nitty gritty work, right, with the most marginalized of the marginalized population. And when I tell you I got my full life there, I got my full life there. I spent a year just sitting and listening because there are spaces, even though I have a vast amount of experience with difficult spaces, I still have a law degree. I still have um, parents who were able to help me navigate through a certain space. I wasn't suffering as economically disadvantaged as most people. And so there's a lot of spaces that I walked in with a lot of privilege, right? Because when I say lawyer, people shut up and listen, you know, in other ways. And so I was like, how do I use that to say, okay, and then I shut up and create space for somebody else. And so I spent a year learning how to do that. And then my second year, I got to take off. And we did a Black Women's Day at the Capitol. And we brought 150 Black women from across the state up to the Capitol for the first time. We did resolutions in different cities, having cities um, dedicate themselves to reproductive health for um, marginalized populations. We spoke all over the country and just like really highlighting the issues. We um, were able to work with other organizations and do GOTV work, which is incredible, right? So getting these marginalized populations out to vote, right? Who had like never voted before and worked within a community from this organization called the Power Coalition and the Power Coalition. And I'm interviewing their executive director ah, later actually, today. Okay, yeah. perfect. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And the Power Coalition is beautiful because it brings together all these entities who have the ability to hold um, the trust of marginalized populations and able to bridge that gap from not being engaged to being engaged. So you're speaking about this in a way that makes me feel like you got energized by that work. Absolutely. You did. Yes. You felt like you were doing something. Yes. Yes. You're yes. making a difference. Make, yes. That was, I was like, oh, wait, I think, I think this is the thing. It, and it was. I went to DC while I was at Women with a Vision. I went to DC and I met Jamal. Huh. And Jamal was putting together this um, program. Jamal Bickley King. Yes. <laughs> who has become an incredible friend and mentor. And he put together Change the Game. And Change the Game brought together um, community members from across the country who advocate with marginalized populations and taught us all the things for, around data and campaigning and raising money and all of that and put us in connection with people who could really help move that forward. And I was in one of the groups. We were the only all-female group within that space. And we're sitting around and we're like, we should have a pack. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we should we should elevate this power and form a pack. And I had just gotten a friend of mine who does a personal injury. He had just given me um, a settlement from a case that I sent to him. And I was like, you know what? I got some money. Let me go ahead and start this pack. Um, so I started the pack. We left, changed the game. I was like, okay, I got a pack. I said, but uh, I need something else. I think I, said, I, think I need a C4. I, I need to do voter engagement to level this up. And then we were like, yeah, we need a C3. So that is where it is. Uh, Citizen She is the C3. Citizen She United is a C4. And She LA Inc. is the PAC. And now, are these separate from the 28-year-old institution yes, you work for? This these is, are your thing. This is, this is a whole new and, and you, and, space. And how long... Well, how long ago was that that you launched these yes. three things? So incredibly, not this past Christmas, um, 2017, I was at a, a speaking engagement. The student from Tulane Facebooked me after me. He's like, yeah, hey, Nia, you know, you don't know me. I have some money I want to give you. And I was like... 
What? Oh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I don't know what side this is coming from. I don't know, you know what's going on. So I ignored it. Oh, man. Um, and then he uh, emailed me again. He's like, hey. That's not a good fundraising method, That is not way. a good fundraising method. <laughs> I've learned you don't do that. <laughs> and so he found me at a rally, and he had his Black Lives Matter jacket on. And he's like, Nia, I've been trying to reach you. Can we have coffee? And I said, yes. And I actually brought Ashley Shelton with me to that meeting because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Right. And I need, and Ashley was she's always been a mentor to me and so I was like yeah bring Ashley and he's like yeah my mama passed um I want to honor her um she gave me a lot of money I've got a hundred thousand left do you want it yep (laughs) (laughs) so I learned how to say yes then he wrote me a check um that's a helpful situation it is a very helpful situation and the next day he wrote me a check Hmm. um we deposited into the C4 Mm -hmm. and then got to spend um, the beginning of 2018 putting pieces together. Why do you think he did that? What What was it that he heard from you that inspired him to make that contribution? What he said was yeah. that him and his husband said they want to bring children in this world and they want it to be better than the world that they've experienced. And they thought that this was a pathway there. You were part of making that happen. That, and, and Can't argue with that. When I say the most incredible funder, I, I think him and I text the other day, just and I was just reminding him how grateful it was. He has never hovered over me one bit. Never asked for any reports, nothing, just kind of, you Trust do, you. trusted me. That's a rare funder. <laughs> like a big funder and a rare funder. And I got to hire a strategic planner. Um, we were able to do our logo, did all of our paperwork together. And in March, I left Women with a Vision and I was like, we're- This is March- March of 18. Yep. I said, we're going to go full blown. A year ago. A year yeah. ago. Mm-hmm. And we had ideas that we were going to advocate, you know, with 2,000 black women across the state. We had a survey we were going to do, do some kind of feelers about, we had a plan. Um, to Who's or- we when you're talking? My board, my friends, my aunt, you know, just <laughs> <It's> people. You. <laughs> <laughs> you and, the, and your team. Me, me and my team. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And the, the plan was to organize in North Louisiana because they were having a municipal elections and there was the um, stuff around the amendment two, right? So um, I don't know amendment two down here. Mm-hmm. Amendment two was a campaign. So Louisiana was the one of two states um, that you could convict somebody without a unanimous jury. Oh yes. So, I've mm-hmm. heard about this. Yeah. So it was a 10 to two split and right. you could, people are in jail right now because uh, you know, yeah. 10 to two split that was on the ballot. And we wanted the whole state to say yes on two. I said, I want to do that work in Shreveport because Shreveport is having municipal elections. It's a way to bring people together because, you know, people are going to be split off with all these other ideas and facets, but this one we can come together on, Mm -hmm. right? And you can build a base around a collective idea. Mm -hmm. And so, and I said, if I can get North Louisiana, Shreveport, and I can get New Orleans, Baton Rouge, then I can go straight up 49 and (laughs) I-10, you know, the following year. I found an amazing um, woman in Shreveport. Her name is Candace Baptiste. Now you say Candace's name all the time because this young woman, I met her one day and I realized, oh, she's brilliant. Um, she was able to organize her city in such a way. And 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 one of the things I, I appreciate, I got I got a grant from the um, Unanimous Jury Coalition, and I was able to pay her and pay other organizers up there who were able to pay. 
our canvassers who are formerly incarcerated, directly impacted people, young people, people who have been doing canvassing forever. We're able to bring that group together, pay them $15 an hour um, to do this work. And everything that they asked, I was able to say, yes, can we do a brunch? Yeah, let's do a brunch. Get everyone drunk off mimosas and saying yes on to, you know, can we do, you know, this fair, you know, all these non-traditional ideas. We brought in other organizations to organize with uh, millennials. We did stuff at high schools and we were able to knock 5,000 doors, make 8,000 phone calls, 70% of Cattle Parish, which is where Shreveport is, said yes on two. Um, they had one of the highest turnout rates. How did it go statewide? It, it passed. Okay. It passed. Um, and which was like, you know, like, is it yes? Okay, yes. Now, <laughs> January 1st. So if any crime committed after January 1st, you needed a unanimous jury. Yeah. Um, but we were um, able to organize by saying yes to people who to do activism the way they knew how to do activism for Shreveport, right? Because Shreveport is not New Orleans. Shreveport, it's, and, and doing activism and building a base, especially with low propensity voters, you have to do it the way they say do it, not the way you think it should be done. You have these three organizations right now. Mm-hmm. Where would you like to take them? Like in your dreams, where do they go? Yes, yes. And, and what should other people support you in getting you there? Yes. So we were able to activate 25,000 people throughout the state this year. Mm-hmm. Um, last year. Um, mm-hmm. We even brought um, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley to New Orleans to our, our I big launch. I saw a launch. picture of you together, yes. <sighs> She's incredible. Inspiring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was, it was, and it was inspiring to so many people. This year, I have dreams of 300,000 plus black women voting in the state of Louisiana. Um, we are doing a Black Women's Campaign School next month. I'm going to be working with the Democratic Training Committee to train 200 mostly Black women on how to run, how to run a campaign, and how to be in the leadership space in the party and in their community. We are doing a um, a bill this session centered around protecting young Black girls and doing really dope activism. We're doing a online campaign, offline campaign, and really moving in a really non-traditional way, you know, brunches and fun stuff and second lines and parties and, you know, smaller community spaces. But whatever that city, that community dictates means something to them, that's how we're moving. So this, the, the voting community is informing how we interact with them, not the other way around. And if I'm honest, that is the only way we are going to transform how this process has happened. It is so disheartening when people say my vote doesn't matter. And we know that like elections are one by one or two votes a lot, like the small percentages. Local ones, for Local sure. Ones. And sometimes it's, national ones. Exactly. And those are the ones that, you know, hit closest to home. And it is not, I, I tell people, it's not the pathway to freedom. But it is a part of the pathway out of this space that we're in that's so negative. I live in D.C. And yes. we see things maybe too much in this national political way. Mm-hmm. The state of Louisiana used to be a Democratic state yeah. when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had Democratic senators, had Democratic governors. Yep. It doesn't much lately. <laughs> What's going on with the state and is there hope for it moving to a more progressive mm-hmm. foundation over the next while? Yes. I believe that wholeheartedly. I, you know, that's why I tell people all the time, I'm like, I'm not going to say we're a red state, we are purple. And I say that because yes, our, our leadership um, has been traditionally red as of yet. However, the hearts of our people are blue. 
right? Because we see each other in the way that Democratic Party aligns itself, right? We see each other really in that way, right? We have the desires for all of our kids, right, to to have a good education across the state, regardless of, of race or socioeconomic status. We have a desire for everybody to be healthy, right? We have a desire for everybody to be good and neighborly. Like that is literally the heart of the good part of our Southern tradition, right? And if we're able to tap into that once again, we won't be the state that's last on everything, you know, good and first on everything bad. When I look out and I walk across my state and across my city and I see daddies walking their kids to school, and I see babies just playing. We had the parades. Those are bands of babies, you know, learning instruments. When we have the second line and you think about these people who have been overly incarcerated sitting in their houses with a needle and thread, sewing, you know, these beads on this canvas so that everyone can call them pretty. That is the heart of what this state is. That is who we are as a people. And the country has given up on Louisiana in a lot of ways. Because they're like, oh, that's in a big that. political way, I think we have. <laughs> How do you read from your lens the Trump phenomenon? Here's this guy; his values are not the values you're talking about mm-hmm. that are really core to Louisiana. That are not that are core to your work. He's really not that guy, right? How do you see him from down here? How do I personally see him? Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, I see him as the as as probably worse than the terrible thing. You know, when he when he won the election, my 11-year-old, my now 11-year-old, she was nine at the time, the devastation and fear in her heart was like so real. And I was like, oh, we're out of here. You know, I'm going to go find a place. Jamaica, my law degree will transfer. I'll be good. <laughs> this country is this done. This country is done, <laughs> done, done. And my, my, um, my middle daughter, she said, Mommy, we know enough doctors, lawyers, business people will be fine. It's a community that we advocate with that won't. The people in Louisiana who are thinking about the alignment with Trump. I think that, yes, it is rooted heavily in the racist past and racist history that we have. The reality is all the good things that I love about this city state, it is deeply entrenched in racism. He played and that card effectively here. He played here. that card really, really well. And I think one of the reasons why traditional racism works so well is because it's this idea that you may be poor, you may not have what you want, but at least you're not black. You may be poor and you may not have all the things, you may have poor health, but you're not a woman, right? And he plays this idea that you can be better than something and because there is a lot of loss of hope in those communities as well, right? So it's like he played that really, really well. Like, ah. What do you point to? What do you think worked for him in playing that unfortunate card? Mm-hmm. Like what, what resonated as you see it mm-hmm. in that I, way? I think that there's, um, it's like, so my, even like with my children, my children go to French school, mostly white students and really thoughtfully progressive. However, like when you, when I talk to them, I'm like, oh wait, we're not progressive. We're not progressive because the ideology is, is that I don't want to admit that racism is what it is, right? I don't want to admit that some of my thoughts and some of my feelings are, are not great and not in line um, with spaces. And so he's able to kind of play this idea of overt racism, but like 
create a space where people don't have to admit that it's racism because racism is bad. And if I have to admit that racism is bad, then I have to admit that I participate in this racist society and this so racist he, So you're saying he uses racism, but not overtly. To us that know what racism is, it is overt. Yeah. But to people who don't want to recognize their own racism... They can self-excuse it. Exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. I just like this guy because he's... You know, <laughs> He's working for the country. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, When I listen to you, I'm like, this young woman should run for office. (laughs) You've probably heard this a billion times now, right? Yeah. I think that you connect with people and tell a story that would play awfully well. Why have you not done that? Or is that possibly in your future? Mm -hmm. So I don't want to run. (laughs) I, I enjoy being able to... For the first time in this whole interview, you sort of like blanched a little bit. You you don't want to hear this. No. What, what is it about that job that doesn't fit with your personality or, or whatever? I think it puts me in a box. Mm-hmm. And the, what means a lot to me is when I hear this, then I can create something. But don't we need more away. politicians who aren't in that political box that mm-hmm. that bring the kind of real life experience that you have to the fight? I think so, yes. I think that there are many brilliant women and men across this city, state, and country that are able to do that too. I feel like my role is to pull things together and create something so that other spaces that are really called to that can fly. Like I haven't felt that call. Like when I sit in the spaces I'm sitting on my computer, like, you know, and doing things for she, I feel energized. I feel like, oh, I'm sitting in the space that I'm called to do. Why you mentioned she, what, explain the name of that mm-hmm. to me. What, what's going on there? Cause it's like S period H E. Yes. Yes. What, what's Sisters that? holding equity. Okay. <laughs> so that's what citizen. And what are they holding stands- equity in? And so there's five areas that we um, maneuver through. Educational equity, economic equity, criminal justice reform, access to quality health care, and quality voter engagement. The difference between equality and equity, right, is like recognizing um, where people are. So as black women, we're not a monolithic group. We have our own issues and traditions and ideas and status and all of that. There are spaces that, like I said, I walk in with privilege. And my job is to see my sisters that aren't in similarly situated and create a space where I can back down here and they can be elevated here, right? And then figuring out how do we work as a collective so that everybody is seen and everybody is heard. You know, there's that saying, you know, everyone has a seat at the table. And I like that saying, but I'm like, no, I like the idea of like building, you know, a house and we're all living and we all have our own different metaphor. Different metaphor. And like the reality is, is that because I live in my space as a black woman and someone else lives in their space as a black woman, I want to be able to see all of it. I want to rejoice in all the pieces of that history and that reality. And then I want to be able to work towards a space where we can, if there's a place of detriment, that we can work for a better space. So that's where the equity comes in. So we're holding equity within and amongst ourselves and then within space around the state outside of ourselves. Well, it feels like a great honor to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Is there a so question much. I should have asked that I failed to? You did all the good things. <laughs> I appreciate it so much. Thank it, you. It's great. I, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.
That was Nia Weeks and Citizen She. She's at citizenshe.com. I'm looking forward to seeing how Nia's organizations turn into highly impactful entities. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.